even though at the beginning of a course such as this it appears as if it's a long tedious haul it's over very quickly isn't it and we've come almost to the end of it the thing that needs to be discussed is and what do we do now <laughs> obviously everybody well presumably everybody thinks I'm going to meditate every day now for the rest of my life very nice thought doesn't work as you have probably noticed in the past if you've had that thought before uh, it needs to be attacked a little differently if that thought has come into the mind and it is to be expected that it would we can change that thought to I'm going to meditate tomorrow morning and tomorrow evening and having finished one's meditation in the evening going to bed happily and saying I'm going to meditate tomorrow morning and tomorrow evening one day at a time the rest of my life is too long the rest of my life who knows what's going to happen and also the mind balks at the idea it gets a sort of a feeling that um, well it's a long time so if I don't do it tomorrow there's still time day after <laughs> and so it's uh, counterproductive to have such an idea so I, I warn against it and I would like to uh, suggest very seriously please think I'm going to meditate tomorrow morning and also it's very helpful to have that idea before going to sleep you see it's like this um, rebirth as a given we don't remember what happened last life even though there are uh, things at foot that um, try to bring that up it's not really a useful thing to do and we don't know what's going to happen next life and it's totally immaterial but we're going to have a rebirth every morning every single morning we're reborn we come out of a small death where we don't really know what's going on we have sometimes a faint memory of a dream but we know very well it was a dream so as we come out of that and get reborn in the morning the day is young and our energies are still quite strong and then during the day it diminishes we get older the day gets older and we die again a small death in the evening happy to do so because we're dead tired <laughs> dead tired the word itself already tells us what we are and particularly so because we've been thinking all day it's extremely tiring so we have a new life every morning from a totally absolute standpoint we have a new life every single millisecond but that is a bit difficult to latch on to and to use as a practice point so let's stay with every morning we bring with us the karma that we have made 
particularly, of course, the karma of the day before. That was our last life. Obviously, if we got very angry at somebody during the part that day and then wake up next morning, we might feel still very awful. If we have been loving and kind, if we've had mindfulness and good attention to what's happening, we wake up with buoyancy. Many people, unfortunately, wake up with a kind of underlying thought, oh, another day, what am I going to do now? And other people wake up with the thought of, today I'm going to really conquer the world. Either way, it's extreme. We wake up with what we've brought with us as karma from the past day. Not only that one past day, obviously. We bring with us everything that we've been doing and thinking and um, uh, talking about in the past days, months, years. But the one before, the day before, is particularly strong. It's the one that's nearest to our consciousness. That's why it's extremely important to watch our thoughts, speech, and actions because the results are ours. It's about the only thing that we can say is ours. Now, to watch that means using those methods which you have learned here and hopefully have not forgotten. The four supreme efforts for our thought processes, the four supreme emotions instead of all those others that are dancing around in one's makeup, as substitutes for everything that's unwholesome. Now this <coughs> idea that you can incorporate into your thinking that this one day is our new life also brings very much strength to bear on the fact that we're living in the moment. This is our life from morning to night. The past is gone. It's totally gone. It cannot be resurrected, and in most cases, fortunately so. And the future is yet to come. It's a hope and a prayer. It doesn't exist. It never will exist. It's just conjecture. So the only life we've got is this one. The only moment we've got is in this day. And as this day progresses, each moment is that what we can be living. Everything else is a thought process. If we're th living with thinking, we are not experiencing. And that's why many people actually do have that feeling that they're spectators. They're not really fully alive. And so they're looking for things to do which are more energetic, that are more interesting. None of that matters. It's being in this moment. So if you remember that the only life we've got is this day, and within that day, this moment, it will help to be focused. It will help the meditation, but it will also help to be totally alive, because there is nothing else. This is it. What else is there? The rest is all just head-tripping.
And of course, everybody is busy with that, but we don't have to continue. So that's why it is extremely helpful to have such a thought in the evening before going to sleep. I'll meditate tomorrow morning. That is a kind of thought that is so near to one's renewed consciousness at the next, in the next morning that it will probably have an effect. You may have tried in the past to remind yourself in the evening before going to sleep that you have to wake up at 4 o'clock because you've got to catch a plane. Most people can do that. Go to bed and say, I've got to get up at 4 o'clock. And although the alarm rings, one is already there. The mind can retain those determinations. But to retain a determination, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life, just doesn't have the impact. Now, when you have it all arranged that you're going to do it every morning and every evening, get a corner in your house or even a room which is designated for meditation and put your pillow there and don't remove it. Leave it there. We have dining rooms. We don't carp the chairs away. We have kitchens. We don't take the pots away. We have bathrooms. We don't take the towels away. We have bedrooms. We leave the sheets there and the bed. We've got a meditation corner big enough to sit. It doesn't have to be any bigger than this. And that's where the pillow is. Because if you get up in the morning, and you might have to get up a little earlier to get some peace and quiet, and you can't uh, right, walk right up to that pillow, you might search around the house, and by the time you've found the pillow, you have already lost the determination to do it. So walk right to it. The pillow is there. You know it's waiting for you. Eventually, that becomes so habitual that the moment you do sit down on the pillow, the mind snaps into order. It recognizes the fact that, aha, pillow, legs crossed, that's it, meditation. That takes a while. But our minds are habitually influenced by what we think, say, and do. You can decorate your little corner with some flowers, with a Buddha statue. You can leave it totally empty, stark white walls. You can put a painting on the wall, whatever you prefer. And then when you do sit down, always start with gladdening the mind, being joyful about the fact that you have this opportunity. You don't have to rush out to earn money. You don't have to rush out to till the fields. You can sit and meditate. Be glad you can. Be happy about it. Appreciate your effort. Look upon yourself with contentment, with acceptance. This is it. This is the person I've got for this lifetime. Let's make the best of it. Don't scold that person. Don't blame that person. Don't try to wiggle around with it and say, well, it would be nicer if it looked like this or looked like that. Just get ahead, go ahead and do it. Sit and meditate. In other words, accepting, appreciating, and having a warm feeling for this person that's making a best effort. And the gladdening of having the practice. And then use that method which you have chosen. It may be a good 
way of doing it to watch the breath in the morning and do the sweeping at night. If one has been out in the world, a lot of things accumulate in our emotions and it helps a lot to have that sweeping method in the evening as a sort of uh, cleansing. Just as when we go out in the world, the dust of the streets settles on us the same way the dust of the negativities settle on us. So the sweeping in the evening may be very helpful. Other than that, organize it any which way you want. These are suggestions. If you're able to be fully concentrated and have the meditative absorptions, you must do it every day, otherwise you're going to lose it. And that's a guarantee. If one is extremely skilled at it, years and years of doing it, then one can take a break without any harmful effects. But if it's the beginning of it, it's got to be done every day. You can compare that to yoga exercises. In yoga exercises, we have to stretch our muscles, our sinews, and eventually we can touch our toes. We stop, and it all hardens up again, contracts, and we've got to start all over again. This is the same thing in the mind. Being able to do the meditative absorptions is a stretching of the mind capacity which has to continue in order to not contract again. We call also a mind that is angry, upset, and negative a contracted mind. And if you look at that, uh, when you have that kind of emotion and are able to look at it, you will see that the focus of the mind at the time of negativity is so small, it just concerns this one thing and this one person or this one emotion. One loses sight of the fact that there's a huge universe out there to which we belong. This is a contracted mind. The expanded mind is a mind that can latch on to the universal aspect of everything that happens at will. And that's a mind that continues to be able to reach out in the meditative absorptions to the elevated states of consciousness, which are part and parcel of every human mind. So this is a, just a, um, a warning that if you are able to do it now and don't continue to do it, you're going to have to start all over again. So continue doing it. If you have a group of meditators in your area, anywhere at all, meet with them at least once a week. If you can do it twice a week, that's even better. Group support is enormously helpful. None of us would have sat here as often and as long if not everybody would have done it. Most people are dependent upon the support system of other like-minded people. It's also very helpful to have a group because we at least know, well, there are others who think this is also important. There's not everybody thinks I'm totally crazy to do this. And so that is also helpful, that kind of support where we realize we're not alone in this. Whether the people that you meditate with do exactly the same method or not is totally immaterial. Whether they have ever heard about the Buddha is also immaterial. 
lots of people who meditate don't even know how to spell the word Buddha. It doesn't matter. They are spiritually inclined. They are looking for growth, inner growth, and you will find that they are the kind of noble friends which can be helpful. If you have people, of course, around you who are doing exactly the same thing you're doing, <coughs> that is more helpful because you can have some conversation with them about it. It is ideal. If you live with somebody who does the same thing you do, that's even better. But not everybody has that fortunate occurrence in their lives. If you have a group that is interested in the same thing you are and you do um, discuss the teachings of the Buddha, it is helpful to use tapes or books and, um, which you have been able to get here and use them to then not, when you discuss them, not to voice your own opinions about it. That's the greatest drawback in any spiritual practice. What can one's personal opinion possibly do for one? We've been having those personal opinions for the past decades. And what have they done? They made it possible to earn a living. And that's about it. The rest is all down the drain. The only thing that is worthwhile to discuss is how did this teaching, this particular one which I tried, affect me? Did it work? Could I do it? That's all that matters. And if I haven't done it, not even to talk about it. If we haven't, dis if we haven't actually experienced what the guidelines are and have not actually tried them, there's nothing to discuss. It's all conjecture. And by the same token, when you have one of the books, they do not read like novels. Even though the language is very simple and easily understood, and it's all plain sailing, it's not the, uh, the usefulness of it. These are teaching books. And the way to read them is like we did our school books, only with a little more interest, hopefully, and a little more <coughs> joyfulness. We didn't read that whole school book about geography from beginning to end or about mathematics or whatever it was. They were, we were glad we didn't have to. Well, here, the same thing. You read one page or, at the most, one chapter. Then see whether you can remember what it says. If you can't, and most people can't, write down in telegram style the most essential aspects of the page or the chapter that you've chosen, then practice it. Do it. This is strictly a practice teaching. This is not theory. This is not anything that has to do with the kind of um, knowledge that one uses in universities or for one's jobs. It is a practice which goes into the heart. So after you've practiced it, then the next step is to ascertain whether it actually did what it was supposed to be doing. Because it usually says, well, if you do this, that and that will happen. If you always change your unwholesome thoughts to wholesome ones, you'll feel much happier. Did I? And if the answer is yes, then go to the next page. Only then. Otherwise, the book is just one on a shelf of hundreds of them, thousands of books about Buddhism, 
about Buddhism. Thousands of thoughts about Buddhism. All of them useless. The only thing that matters is what one can do oneself and then the, to see the results. The results of what we do are called reviewing knowledge. Because meditation is science of mind, there is terminology which becomes very useful because we know what we're talking about when we use certain terms. Reviewing knowledge means checking up on oneself. That, does the meditation actually do something for me? Have I changed? Am I less aggressive? Am I less opinionated? Am I softer, more loving, more accepting? All these things, you don't need to tell anybody about it unless you want to. Just checking up for oneself. If nothing of that's happening, you're meditating in vain. You're meditating with personal opinion. When we're meditating with personal opinion, what's supposed to happen, how it's supposed to happen, what I like in the life, what I don't like, nothing happens. One remains the same. If meditation is sort of taking like an injection that has taken, one changes imperceptibly but quite dramatically. So the reviewing knowledge doesn't have to be done every day, of course, but every once in a while, look at yourself. Is there a change? And even if you see the slightest change, it's such a buoyant feeling. Aha, it's happening. And it helps one to remain on the pillow. Many of the things that I have talked about here have also concerned the ideal and last step. Don't get confused by that. Do every step on the way. Particularly get a hold of the method and do it. All the steps are automatic progressions. They keep occurring as that imperceptible but dramatic change happens. Loving kindness is a challenge. It's a challenge for everyone. Accept that challenge. Don't judge. Don't justify. Just accept it. And see whether you can work with that challenge. Opinions are constantly in the way. Look at them and, and maybe having them isn't the worst. The worst is believing them. So it's all right, have your opinions. Everybody has them. I mean, we've got uh, oodles of them. It's, but we don't have to believe them. If they are there as just sort of a decoration, that's fine. But if we hang on to them for dear life because they constitute me, then they are a barrier to spiritual growth. As you practice your meditation and hopefully find a group, you may also think that if you can't find a group, start one. Two people are a group. It's always helpful to have another person. It's usually not just one plus one, but it's usually two by the power of two. It's much more powerful than just having 
to sit alone. But there's many people nowadays that can be found. If you lose your impetus along the way to continue meditation, it's time to have another course. I myself am planning to be back in New Mexico next year in April. We are hoping to be able to establish our own center, but even if that does not happen, for the reason that we can't find a suitable place, then we'll use this place again. I find this very suitable, and so if you are thinking that this is a good way to learn about the spiritual path next April I plan to be here <coughs> bearing misfortunes of health or what else so another thing that I'd like to mention is also the fact that if your meditation is progressing and you need help on the way and you haven't got anybody whom you can ask you have somebody whom you can ask that's fine but if you haven't you can write to me even though I moan and groan about the amount of correspondence I have I still keep offering this service (laughs) 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 and if you do have something where it is necessary to ask how to proceed this might be the best thing to do My constant address is in Germany, and uh, I'll bring down little stickers with my address on. I didn't bring them with me now. They're in my room. And if you like, you can get one from me. So that's another possibility. If there is someone whom you can ask, then, of course, that is preferable because the answer is immediate, whereas with the male you have to wait at least something like, I don't know, 10, 12 days till it goes there and comes back. If it takes longer, it doesn't mean that I'm not answering. It just means that I'm somewhere else and have to come back to my desk first. I, an- I answer all letters. So there's a guarantee that you get an answer. Now, in your daily practice, it goes beyond just meditating. I've said this before, and I'd like to remind you of it. Meditation is one part of spiritual practice. It's not a lot. And that is particularly uh, strongly misunderstood in the West. In the East, that is actually taken for granted. Unfortunately, so much so that meditation is often not practiced. But we are in the fortunate position that meditation is already now established as a method, but we need the other practices. So what else do we do? Obviously, the four supreme efforts and the emotions, the substitution with the wholesome. But how do we do that? Well, the main thing that we can do in everyday life is mindfulness. There's nothing surpassing mindfulness. And the more mindfulness we have, the easier life flows, even on a material level, even on the level of just everyday occurrences. 
If we can't remember where we've put our car keys, it takes time and energy to find them. If we are mindful when we put them down, we know exactly where they are and pick them up again. So it goes with everything we do. If our mind is muddled, our life is muddled. There's no two ways about it. All we have to do is go home and look at our rooms. Are they topsy-turvy, upside down, nothing to be found, or is everything in its place? If the mind has everything in its place, everything around us is in its place. And as everything is in its place, it facilitates all the necessary things we have to do every day. We have to do many things to look after the body. We have to eat, we have to shop, we have to cook, we have to wash the dishes, we have to wash the clothes, we have to clean the house. Many things need to be done day after day. And as they need to be done day after day, we can facilitate our lives if we neither reject them nor look upon them as the content of a human life. There are no extreme, just the middle. They are necessary. And the more mindful we are about these everyday occurrences, which means putting one's mind and one's attention on exactly what one is doing, the easier it is, the better it flows, the quicker it goes, the less obstacles there are in the way, and the more time there is to really use for spiritual understanding, either within oneself or through meditation or through books. If we think of the things that happen in everyday life, like looking after this body, that it has to be washed and fed and exercised and has to be the hair has to be cut and the, the nails have to be cut and the teeth have to be filled and the, the car has to be washed and all the rest of it, if we look upon that as life, we're missing the best part of it. That's nothing but keeping alive. And if we use only our energies and our time, our intelligence and our heart for keeping alive, we are doing a totally useless exercise. Nobody manages to stay alive. <laughs> so, on the contrary, all those things are necessary adjuncts for keeping alive where we are and then having done them, having finished with them, our time is then our own to use not for diversion and distraction but to use for seeing greater and more profound truth. One of the things that help us are books, naturally, the tapes, all these things help us. But the most profound truth is embedded within us and that too is mindfulness. That is introspection. Look. Look inside. What's most important? Do I want to get or do I want to give? This is one of the most crucial questions one needs to ask oneself. Am I in the business of getting or in the business of giving? If I'm in the business of getting, I'm on the material level of the worldly endeavors which are advertised everywhere. Get the best toothpaste and you'll have sparkling white teeth. Or get the nicest girlfriend and you'll be happy ever after. Or whatever. 
But if that appears to be futile, and any intelligent person ought to know that this is totally futile, but still we are very much influenced by it, then what's the alternative? The alternative is, is giving. There's no other alternative. It's not not getting. We'll be getting. It's impossible not to. But that's not the reason to be alive. So it is important, if we want to have a spiritual path, to find out what is actually our most important priority in our lives. And to check that out. And you can, quite usefully, use a piece of paper and write on it what you think is the most important thing in your life. And you may have more than one. You may have 10 or 12. That contemplation we did, may I be able to protect my own happiness? And then take a piece of paper, what is my own happiness? And then write it all down. Then look at it the next day. Are you still of the same opinion or can you cross off a few? You probably can cross off a few. You might be able, over the period of a month, be able to cross off the lot and just leave one. If you do, then you may have found the priority in life. If not, keep going with those that seem important and eventually look at them again and again and see, are they really that important or am I wasting my time? If it's concerned with keeping alive, pleasing their senses, it must occur to an intelligent person that that is so transient and such an endeavor using one's energy for a momentary pleasure and using one's whole being for something that can't be done, namely staying alive, then one can look at these things with a different outlook. One sees them in their other perspective. Now, the aspect of the senses is what you will be confronted with. Of course, you've been confronted with it here too, but not at such an ex to such an extent as we are confronted with the sense contacts outside in the world. Our whole economy depends upon the assault on the senses. And if the assault on the senses is done cleverly, the economy runs well. And if it isn't done cleverly, it doesn't run so well. So when you look at it from a standpoint of objectivity, what are all these advertisements, commercials, billboards, show windows? What are they all? What does it all put, project? Look at it, find out. Does it project happiness or does it project things? And what are things? Are they permanent or impermanent? Are they going to create that inner peacefulness or do they create more unrest? Because things deteriorate. They've got to be looked after. They've got to be cleaned. They've got to be renewed. Some of them are so valuable they've got to be insured. Some have to be hidden away and locked so that nobody can get at it. They're a constant burden. But they're an extension of me. So look at them again 
with a new perspective and see whether they have the importance that the world we live in gives them. Now, that does not mean that we are not going to have pleasant sense contacts. That depends upon our karma. And obviously people who come to the Dhamma and have the ability and the opportunity to meditate have made some very good karma. Otherwise one wouldn't get this opportunity. So with that good karma that we have made, we also have pleasant sense contacts. But there is a great difference between the pleasant sense contact which is searched for and then enjoyed because it is what we want and the one that just comes about for the person who has a totally different perspective. If we have known, for instance, and primarily, the relief and release of being able to meditate where we experience absorptions and have that inner purity as our own experience, our sense contacts will no longer be our primary search. They will no longer have the kind of importance that they used to have. That is immediately obvious. There will be beautiful sunsets. How can they avoid to be? There will be rainbows in the sky. There will be wildflowers. There will be lovely little children playing. There will be nice contacts through the sight and the sound, through our smell, our taste, and our touch. But when we know them, what they are, totally impermanent, only coming into us through favorable outer conditions, we no longer make our happiness depend on them. We experience them without wanting to keep them, without wanting to renew them. And that kind of experience is then a pure sense contact. And some people here in this course have experienced, after they having had the med meditative absorption, that the green looks much greener and the blue is much bluer. And everything that, they, that what one sees outside has to have sort of like almost a third dimension of clarity to it. Because the senses are no longer used as an amusement park. They are just are. As long as we're using them for our amusement park, we are stuck in worldly endeavor. We will have, the purer the whole being becomes, the more pleasantness arises through the senses because we have a much greater capacity to experience the sense contacts. And they will be of a far stronger impact, but they will not leave the residue of wanting it again. And therefore there's purity in that contact. And they also do not have the residual effect of wanting to keep. So that is another mindfulness exercise, checking it out. How do I relate to my sense contacts? Are they on the top of the list of my priorities? Or where are they? Or didn't I have to write them down at all because I know they're happening anyway? Now, just as the pleasant ones happen, the unpleasant ones will happen. Nobody is immune. 
because all of us have made good and bad karma. Nobody has only made good karma. It's quite impossible to be a human being and not have both. It's a matter of balance, that's all. So there'll be unpleasant ones. And by the same token, as we no longer, through the practice, grab at the pleasant ones, search for them, try to renew them, we no longer resist and reject and dislike the unpleasant ones because we have seen the transience, the impermanence of the pleasant ones, and by the same token, the transience and the impermanence of the unpleasant ones. They just are. And therefore, life flows, our daily life flows much easier. It doesn't have to have its ups and downs. It doesn't have to have the elation nor the depression. It just goes along on that even keel, which we may call equanimity, but that's not a word which makes a great deal of impact on people because most people don't even know what it is. It's a flowing with an inner buoyancy independent of outer conditions. Our mindfulness, I'd like to repeat this because it's very important, has four bases, four objects, four focuses, and these four need to be used whenever... (coughs) the one or the other is appropriate. So it isn't a hard and fast rule, I've got to watch my body. That is appropriate as we're moving about doing things, washing dishes while washing dishes, walking while walking, uh, getting dressed while getting dressed and not worrying about whether I'm going to look pretty. But that kind of thing is not always appropriate. There are other times when the emotions take over. Watch them. Mindfulness means objectivity I don't have to be that emotion I can just become aware of it and be aware of the fact that whether it is wholesome or unwholesome and if it's unwholesome I'm able to change it if I become the emotion there's no way we can change it because how can I change that what I am but if I'm the objective observer of it I can change it and the third one the mental states which arise, which give then way to the thought process, the mental content, or the emotional content. And then the thought content, which needs to be attacked with the four supreme efforts. Again, one has to be totally objective towards one's thought processes, because if one is that negative thought, well, there's no way to change it. If I believe it, there's no way to change it. But we have to remember that every negativity makes karma. Even the smallest negative thought makes small negative karma. And we are the owners of that. It's about the only thing we can say we really own. We cannot give it to somebody else. We cannot even share it. Nobody can give us their karma. That's what we've got. And the karma means in our way of using it, our intentional thought, speech, and action, and the resultant. It's technically not correct, but that's how the word has come into our language. It's actually karma is the intention, and the result is vipaka. But since that's a foreign word, let's stick to karma. The intention and the resulting, uh, the, uh, resulting effects of that. And if you become a little more um, attentive, to what goes on in your life, in daily life, just small or medium or large things, doesn't matter, you will see that sometimes you can even notice the connection 
the connection of having done or thought or said something and then getting that to happen very soon after. So that will, if that is possible to see the connection, that will help one greatly to be careful, to be careful to stay on the good side of it because who wants to hurt themselves purposely? Nobody. We always do it out of ignorance that we hurt ourselves. So mindfulness coupled with meditation. But there's another thing that I'd like to mention at this time, which is very helpful in daily life and which is coupled with mindfulness. And the Buddha mentions the two together at um, many times. Mindfulness coupled with clear comprehension. In Pali, that's sati and sampanyanya. Mindfulness, I have already explained to you, is objectivity. It is not judgmental. Mindfulness is actually knowing only. It's not discriminating. It knows what goes on. It's, so to say, the first step. In order to know that it's unwholesome, we really need clear comprehension. So that's a partner for mindfulness, that clear comprehension. And clear comprehension has four steps which we can use. And if we use them, we slow ourselves down, obviously. But by slowing ourselves down, we also make less mistakes. If we act impulsively and instinctively, it's very easy to make mistakes. If we slow it down and deliberate first before we act, it becomes far more possible to have a hold on things, to be more in charge of one's own actions. So clear comprehension starts out with discerning the These are called our three doors. That's all we've got. It's very nice because we don't have to watch so much. It would be dreadful if we had 12 doors. We'd really be busy. But three doors is not so bad. And of course, the first of them is the thought. The thought is always the primary mover. There is no other mover except the thought process. So that needs to be looked at. So let's say that we are, have already now understood we've got three, three things that we can do. We can either think, we can talk, or we can act. But everything depends upon the thought. So now we look at the purpose of it. Why am I thinking that? Is that really useful? Now, if we decide that it isn't, we can drop it. There's no, that's not difficult. If we see that a thought is totally useless, we can drop it. But it isn't always either useful or useless. Most of the time, it's unfortunately used in order to enhance the ego illusion. And that appears to be useful. And that's where our whole problem comes from. Because if I have a thought that I'd like to have some nice sense contacts, or if I have a thought that I really dislike that person. This is all based on the fact that there is um, me and mine at, in the forefront. So it's not that easy to distinguish between the useful purpose and the useless purpose, because there's always interpreted or injected in the middle of it this support system for the ego. 
So in order to make sure whether it's useful or useless, we can see whether it would be to our spiritual benefit. Because clear comprehension needs to be looked upon as a spiritual practice and not on the worldly level. Now sometimes we may see that that what we have in mind is on the worldly level but decide to make the choice to go ahead with it. All right. But other times we may find that it is going to detract immensely from our understanding of how the spiritual path operates. So then we can see that the purpose is not useful. So we need to look upon it whether it is spiritually acceptable, whether it conforms to the precepts which we have taken, whether it has any kind of benefit which can be a little longer lasting than just a sense contact. If we say yes to all that, we say yes, it's a good purpose. The next question then is, am I using the most skillful means to accomplish this purpose? Now let's say we would like to tell somebody how they should run their lives. And we have decided that this is a good purpose, that that person is really going downhill and that we really need to tell that person how to run his or her life. So we, are, we have said yes to the first step. Now comes a skillful means. Am I just going to walk in there and say, look, you're doing it all wrong, you've got to do it differently, or am I going to sit down and talk about other matters and then slowly approach this, or am I going to first um, support what that person is doing and then show up little flaws in it, or how am I going to go about it? What are the most skillful means? Or am I going to keep my mouth shut and just be an example? What is the most skillful means? Now, having ascertained the most skillful means, then the next question arises, and that is, are the means and the goal both within the Dhamma, the spiritual path? Because there are no means that are excused by the end. The means are never justified because the end is supposedly good. Both have to be good. The means have to be on the spiritual path, acceptable and justifiable, and the end, of course, too. The end is the purpose. The means are the skillful means, and both have to be within the practice of the Dhamma. In other words, they must not go against the precepts, but they must also not be totally ego-orientated. So we have to check it out like that and see whether there is that possibility that it is on a level where we can really say that would be something that the Buddha would also approve of. Now, the more you know of what the Buddha approved of, the easier that will be. But uh, I think everybody has a bit of an inkling of what a Buddha would approve of or not. And so if we have said yes to all three and have gone ahead with whatever it is we wanted to think, say, or do, then at the end of the action, we have a review did I actually accomplish my purpose? And if not, why not? Was the purpose no good? Or were the means no good? Or what happened? In order to have a sort of a lesson for our next endeavor. Now, obviously, that's not going to take quite as long as it took me to explain that. But it does take longer than just saying whatever comes to one's mind. Much longer. <laughs> 
and that can be extremely useful. And it also takes longer than just going ahead with whatever one has thought up and any idea that has come to the mind, and this is what I'm going to do now because it appears to be very nice and uh, pleasurable. That kind of inspection of one's own ideas and one's own hopes and one's own plans is the way to stay on the spiritual path. The world out there is against it. What you, what you will, if you're attentive, you will notice that everything that happens out in the world is directed against the spiritual path. It's all on the worldly level. So one has to be extremely alert to oneself to stay on the path. And to stay on the path means that one introspects and has an interest and an attention to all those things that come up in the mind constantly. Now, some of them that come up are, of course, totally useless and we can drop them right away. We know that they're just fantasies. But others we want to continue on. So these are where we use clear comprehension. I'll tell you a story which is a, a famous uh, Buddhist story of the Buddha's life. And whether it is true or not doesn't really matter because it has a very important symbolism in it for our spiritual practice. When the Buddha was not yet enlightened, but still the Bodhisattva, he made up his mind that he would sit under a certain tree, which is now called the Bodhi tree. It was actually a fig tree one of the many kinds of fig tree, because it was a pleasant way of sitting, or shady there, at a certain spot on the banks of the Uruwela River in what is today called Bodhgaya. It wasn't called by that name then. And he made up his mind that he would sit there and meditate until his flesh would rot from the bones if he didn't find enlightenment. In other words, he wasn't going to move away from that spot. He was determined to find the cause of suffering. <coughs> so he set himself down under that tree. Now this tree was known in the area as being the abode of a deva, a um, being of a little higher level than the human level, uh, pro most probably one of the Bhuma devas, the earth devas, that make their abodes in trees. And this deva had the reputation that if you prayed to it, it would help barren women to conceive a child. And so women went there quite frequently to pray to that deva and promise gifts if a child would be born. And one of the women of the area who had done that was Sujata. And she had prayed to this tree deva and to conceive a child and lo and behold, she did. She had a child nine months later. Now, she had also promised a great offering to this tree deva, but had not gotten around to that yet. So one day, her maid went past that tree and saw the bodhisattva sitting under the tree and assumed that that was the tree deva. 
and said to him, Oh, sir, um, don't go away. I know my mistress will bring the offering. Uh, please wait here. Now, since the Bodhisattva didn't have any intention of moving anyway, he, uh, he just sat there. And the maid ran home to her mistress and reported this incident. Now, Sujata appears to have been a rich woman owning a dairy. So she immediately said that, yes, of course, I must make this offering now. So she, the story says that she milked a hundred cows and gave the milk to drink to fifty cows. And then she milked fifty cows and gave the milk to drink to twenty cows. Then she milked twenty cows, gave the milk to drink to ten cows, and then she milked ten cows and gave the milk to drink to one cow. And when she milked that cow, pure cream came out. And then she cooked rice in that pure cream. And as it was cooked, then she put it in a golden bowl. And then she took the golden bowl and this milk rice, which in uh, Pali and also in Sinhalese is called kiribat. And to this day, on all festive occasions, all monks and nuns are offered kiribat. It's uh, rice cooked in milk. She, of course, cooked it in cream. So she took this golden bowl with the milk rice and went to the tree, and there she met up with what she thought was the tree deva. And she thanked this tree deva profusely for having uh, made it possible to have a child and said she was offering this golden bowl with the rice as her uh, token of gratitude and also wanted the bodhisattva to keep the golden bowl. So the bodhisattva ate the rice and took the golden bowl and said, I will throw this golden bowl into the river behind me. If it swims downstream with the current, I won't get enlightened. If it swims upstream against the current, I will become enlightened. So obviously it must have swum upstream against the current. Now this particular happening is the symbolism for the spiritual practice. If we swim downstream with the current, the current of public opinion, the current of our own instincts, which are geared towards sense pleasure, the current of the world at large, we will be in enormous company. Nobody's going to say a word to us that we're going the wrong direction. But where do we go? We end up in the mud flats with everybody else. Now, if we go against the current of public opinion, if we go against the current of our instincts, if we go against the current of what the world is doing at large, it's much harder work. We have to paddle much harder to swim upstream. And on the way there, there will be many catcalls, there will be many people saying, what are you doing? You're going the wrong direction. Come on, go with us to the beach. Come, have a nice meal. This is ridiculous, sitting with crossed legs. But as we keep on doing that, where do we end up? If we come to the end, we end up at the source. We end up at the spring where the water is totally pure. We end up into the source and the spring of our own purity, where there is lots of space because most people don't swim upstream. 
And this is the symbolism of this story, which is one of the best-known stories in Sri Lanka, in the Theravadan countries uh, altogether, particularly in Sri Lanka, where nobody's ever thought about the symbolism, where everybody believes the story to be just so. Now, it may very well be just so. I have no personal opinion whether Sujata actually did this or not. It's quite possible she did. But the golden bowl is, of course, our own heart. And if we remember this story, and stories are often told by the Buddha because they help us to remember things, if we remember that, we will see that a lot of the things that are happening in everyday life are just going downstream. And we will not be so much bothered by others who say, this is not the right way, do it my way, or come along with me, or this would be much more pleasurable, or I know better. I've already tried it out. We will know that there's only one thing to do, and that is to purify, so that we can actually reach that source of being where there is only purity, just like the spring of a river where it all emanates from. I'd like to give you some time to ask the very last questions, if you like. And then we'll do our last loving-kindness meditation and sharing of merits. So if you have any questions, this is your last opportunity to ask them about anything at all. It doesn't matter what it is. Yes? Um, in my contentment, I was like, visualizing colors and stuff. Is that appropriate? Or can you just, I don't know, go back to being content, but see these colors? All right. You, uh, when you're saying being content, are you talking about the third jhana or are you just talking about the fact that you're feeling all right? No, I'm in third jhana. Okay. <laughs> Seeing colors is a distraction at that time. Drop them. Back to total attention on that wishlessness, total contentment. Colors can be useful to get started. They are an alternative to the breath. They're also a key, but certainly not when we're already that far. Okay. Anything else? Mm -hmm. Well, this isn't a question, but I certainly like to thank you for this opportunity for these wonderful teachings that you've given us. Thank you very much, and I want to thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> All right, you've got the last opportunity now for your questions. Use them. <laughs> yes. Mm. Yes, that's quite an important question, actually, because it's right down to, you know, brass tacks. Um, if you found the 45 minutes difficult and you are an absolute beginner, and there are very few absolute beginners, but there are some, um, start with 30 minutes and then work up. Uh, like 30 minutes for two weeks, then 35 minutes, then 40, then 45. Work up <coughs> to an hour. If the 45 minutes seemed fine, start with 45 and work up to an hour. For experienced meditators, an hour is a sort of, a, you know, rule by thumb. Um, but don't start with an hour and work downward, because, you know, that's, uh, the, the, uh, that's what happens usually. So if, it's, uh, at the mo if at the moment 45 still seems difficult or that it's difficult to get up early enough, start with 30, but work yourself up. 
have a goal like thing okay and an hour is the thing that experienced meditators usually use please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments Imagine you have a beautiful white lotus flower growing in your heart and this beautiful flower opens all its petals until it's fully open. And out of the center of this beautiful flower in your heart comes a golden stream of light which fills you from head to toe with warmth and joy and peace and it surrounds you completely with a feeling of love and well-being Now let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to the people around you, filling them all with warmth and joy and peacefulness and surrounding them all with love. Think of the people whom you're going to meet very soon at home. Fill them with the golden stream of light from the center of your heart, containing the warmth of your heart, joy, peacefulness, and surrounding them with that golden stream of light containing your love. Think of the people that you will meet in the course of the following days at work or your neighbors 
or in offices or in shops. Think of all the people that will be in your life in the coming days. And let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to each one of them with warmth and light and love, filling and embracing them. Now let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart flow out and reach out to all of nature around us, connecting with the trees and the earth, the sky, the sun, the moon and the stars, the grasses and the flowers, giving them your heart, your warmth, your love, feeling embedded and connected. Now think of the earth as the home of so many animals, very tiny, hard to see, larger and very large. Imagine all the different animals that you know. Some are on the earth, some are in the air and some are in the water. And let that golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to all these feeling the connection, the togetherness, life on this planet. We are together with all these creatures. Love them, embrace them, whether they are beautiful to look at or not. And now think of all the different people that are inhabiting our planet, all feeding from this earth, all looking for happiness. Different colors, different religions, different languages, different houses, different customs, but all doing the same thing. 
try to imagine as many as you can and let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to all of them with your warmth, your love, your peacefulness, connecting with them, sharing with them, giving to them, embracing them. Now put your attention back on yourself and recognize the joy that comes from giving and the contentment that comes from loving. Fill yourself with that joy and that contentment, feeling the light and the warmth of that golden stream of light from your heart. And now let the golden stream of light go back inside the lotus flower which closes its petals and then anchor the lotus flower in your heart so that it may become one with it. We share the merits of this meditation retreat with all our teachers, with our parents who made this life possible for us, with our loved ones, with our friends and our enemies. We share the merits of this retreat with all the devas who are present. We share with the people who are looking after this place and let us be here with the nuns who cooked for us. We share the merits with Tony, Anya and Barbara who were instrumental in making this retreat happen and Dixie and Bob who were a great help in finding this place we share the merits with everyone who can have benefit from it and we share the merits with each other. I now officially end this retreat. Noble silence is lifted. May you all be very happy.
There are a number of ways of making good karma and two of those ways are listening to the Dhamma and teaching the Dhamma. They are equally good karma. So I'd like to thank you very much for coming here to this retreat and giving me the opportunity to make good karma. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.